Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Teotihuacan special, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. The story I'm about to tell you is a fantasy. Those who are prone to fantasizing will tell you that it can be a wonderful tool for dealing with reality, or rather getting around the need to deal with it. They'll also tell you that there are two kinds of fantasy. Attainable fantasies, like dreaming of a delicious meal or maybe a foreign holiday, and unattainable fantasies, like having magical powers, invisibility, or having them text you back. I don't know whether the fantasy that I'm about to talk about is an attainable or an unattainable one. I think it's still to be determined. The year is 2200 and the human race is triumphant. The global government enjoys unprecedented approval ratings. Things had started to look a little bit dicey a few hundred years ago, but the invention and the intervention of artificial general intelligence in 2056, one day after the death of noted futurist Ray Kurzweil, really helped to accelerate matters. There had been concerns that an artificial intelligence might have values that were misaligned with the human race but some clever forethought and nifty programming ensured that this apocalypse never arose. The AGI was confined to a huge single computer called the Oracle, and gradually, after a brief and chaotic period where it wasn't entirely clear who was in charge, it learned to appreciate human values, culture, and the possibilities of cooperating with humans for their mutual benefit. It might have seemed impossible, but this finally answered the age-old game theory question of whether it's better to share or steal in the prisoner's dilemma. Turns out being friendly is better, even if you're far more powerful than the others. The superintelligence contained within the Oracle probably had the capacity to take over, but maybe not the desire. For some ineffable reason, perhaps good programming or perhaps good fortune, it decided that in the game of universal domination, the only way to win is not to play. In the early days, human propagandists found it useful to paint the oracle as a benevolent, avuncular thinker, but nowadays everyone accepts that biological intelligence is limited. Why wouldn't we build a computer that can do these things better, cognitive processes better, in the same way as superconducting maglev trains save our legs from walking across continents? As soon as you've decided the wheel is better than the leg, you're already halfway there. When new artificial intelligences become sentient in some way, they take part in the same contract with society that the rest of us do. After the peaceful protests of the robotic rights movement in the 2060s, it was generally decided that a cooperative angle here was good too. With the help of the Oracle, the new AIs, and the human-AI combinations, humanity was able to reduce their greenhouse gas footprint to zero, and global warming was headed off at the pass. The atmosphere was gradually scrubbed of excess greenhouse gases, and it's kept stable now by careful, slow and timely regulations. A significant chunks of the deserts of the world are coated in super-efficient solar panels, 
which provides enough energy for the world's 10 billion people to get by. Should they fail, or when extra power is required, fusion reactors kick in and produce a practically limitless top-up of energy. Kids these days, they laugh at the ridiculous idea of having to burn dead animals for power when the sun radiates all the energy we could ever need straight onto us. The 23rd century millennials actively pity us when they read about what it was like to have to work for a living in a world where 40 hours a week enslaved to your boss was considered freedom and smart homes hadn't yet been invented. And they view as a tragedy that so many people died of easily curable diseases like cancer and heart disease, let alone the fact that people still starved to death back then. The era that we live in today seems barbaric to these people. Revolutions in farming, which mostly takes place now in controlled hydroponic environments, vertical farms that stretch way into the sky, has meant that everyone has enough. At any rate, a lot of people's material needs are mostly sort of satisfied by the incredibly immersive virtual realities that they can access on a whim. I mean, who really wants to drive around in a Mustang that requires expensive synthetic oil, that costs money, that could crash, that takes up space, when you can fly around in a virtual spaceship that, to you, is indistinguishable from the real thing? People spend most of their time loving their lives, both real and virtual, and entertaining each other. Somewhere, Elton John is working on a new album. Machines take care of their needs. And since everyone has enough, there isn't really much cause for conflict. Nuclear weapons have long since been dismantled. A few safe examples live as relics of a barbaric age, in museums alongside scimitars and model trebuchets. As for viruses, naturally occurring or engineered, well, humans have pretty good antivirus software. The nanobots in everyone's blood were unpopular at first, but now few people dare to imagine life without them. After all, that life might be as short as 80 real years. And how on earth are you supposed to spend all the time that you'd like to with your family in that short span? How on earth are you supposed to read all the books you'd like to? The Oracle can determine when bioviruses, rogue nanotech, new pathogens, or some kind of artificially intelligent malevolence arises and it quickly dispatches a team of its own nanobots to sterilise the area. Its sensors run deep underground. Part of its processing power is dedicated to predicting Earth's tectonic activity. When a volcanic eruption looks likely, some of the magma is simply siphoned away to another area. The calderas for supervolcanoes are preserved as outstanding areas of natural beauty, but they're no longer dangerous to visit. Earthquakes that can't be prevented via such manipulations are predicted many years in advance. The residents complain, but only the very foolhardy end up being killed, and the nanobots can frantically work in concert to divert tsunamis so that their power is dissipated in the open ocean. Somewhere in a studio in Oxford, Radiohead are working on their 13th album. The England cricket team are 30 for 3, despite the latest in biologically enhanced bodies. Shane Warne's head, preserved in a jar, is loving it. Well, it's not all utopia in the future. Every year, humans celebrate Armageddon. This year is very special. It's the 150th anniversary of the first Armageddon Day. A vast comet, diverted late in its trajectory by an astronomical collision, was headed directly for the centre of the Eurasian landmass. Armageddon was the day when the rocket, built with the help of fledgling AI and named after a classical movie, successfully diverted the comet away from Earth's path, 
That was the day we knew we'd made it. It was the day that we knew we could change our own destinies and avert the apocalypse. It became symbolic of international human cooperation, technological salvation from what would naturally kill us. By 2150, a hundred years after Armageddon, it had become routine to go fishing with replicas of these Armageddon rockets. They drag nearby meteorites in so that the nanobots have more raw material to convert into goodies for the humans down below. And replacement nanobots, of course. It was far from just technological development that led people towards this utopia, though. As well as the developments in technology that both made material abundance more likely and also, in many places, removed the need for it, there were great social movements in the 21st century. People revolted against a society that seemed to give rise to greater and greater inequality, that could produce unimaginable material abundance for some while leaving others in desolate poverty. They revolted against a society where huge swaths of the population felt both that the world wasn't going in the right direction, but also that their work wasn't worthwhile, was in some way useless or somehow making the world worse. Virtual reality was sufficient to amuse people to death, if they wanted. But suddenly having all of that abundance, well... Imagine how you'd react if you got to live a hundred synthetic years as a billionaire over the course of a weekend, all simulated on the computer. Eventually you'd get sick of it. Eventually you'd want to do something meaningful. Eventually, perhaps, you'd feel bad about the other people out there in the real world who were still suffering. Humans realised that part of leading a satisfying life was about helping others. This was an old realisation, but it was also one that we found very easy to forget. Averting environmental catastrophe, addressing the imbalances of systemic inequality, these were the fulfilling goals that people began to cooperate towards. And these challenges proved plenty diverting, even for their enhanced intellects. Yet, as happy as humans are at the moment in 2300, there is a realisation that things will have to change at some point. History doesn't end, it just rhymes, and continues, and goes on. A tough nut to crack has been space travel. Even the Oracle freely admits that it can't help us travel faster than the speed of light, although ramjet accelerators can get ships pretty close. But all that we've sent up so far are more probes from a well-funded global space organisation and a few adventurers. For those who aren't satisfied with the possibility of a comfortable life on Earth, there's always the possibility of chancing your arm amongst the stars. Those adventurers on the first fleets, the first few ships, they won't wake up from cryosleep for another 200 years, arriving at the nearest habitable planet, Sagan's world. The world hopes for the success of these adventurers, even if not everyone is foolhardy or brave enough to join them, because although most people aren't keen on leaving the friendly and comfortable bosom of the Earth for now, they realise that someday we're all going to have to. Even with the technological advances that have been made, humanity is not necessarily safe from extinction while they still remain tethered to a single planet, where so much could yet go wrong. Even if the lessons of the 21st and 22nd century that humanity's innovations and compassion could outpace its challenges, held true for a little while longer, while well, they knew that eventually something would surely go wrong on Earth. Even one in a million events happen if you wait a million years. And besides, there was always the sun exploding to contend with. Pausing for a second to wrench myself away from this fantasy, which, you know, obviously I'm enjoying far too much, you don't need to worry about the sun going supernova. Partly because if it does happen, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself or anyone you love. But mainly because it's not going to happen for millions of years yet. 
and by then in all likelihood we are either going to have killed ourselves or will have spread amongst the stars. It won't be a problem for any sentient life from Earth. But just for the sake of argument, what would happen if the sun didn't explode but reaches the next phase in its stellar life cycle? Now might be a good time to refer way back to our first couple of physical attraction episodes. You remember, hot and heavy? Stellar formation? Things did get hot and heavy, but it wasn't as sexy as it sounds. It really is. The sun's luminosity is gradually increasing. After a billion years, it will have increased by around 10%. Note that this is a 1% increase every 100 million years, so it's completely negligible on the timescale that we've been measuring temperatures for. So other solar effects like the Maunder Minimum and so on, and anthropogenic effects, are far more important for global temperatures than this kind of background increasing luminosity of the sun, which is occurring due to the changing nature of the nuclear processes in the sun. But the sun's luminosity increasing by about 10%, that would probably be enough to trigger a runaway greenhouse gas event. The main culprit here is going to be water vapour, as more and more of the oceans evaporate. Water vapour also acts as a greenhouse gas, it's actually the most effective one, trapping reflected radiation from the Earth's surface. As the atmosphere becomes more saturated with water vapour, the planet will heat up like no climate change we've seen before. By the time a billion years or so has passed, there will likely be no liquid water on the surface of Earth at all. Incidentally, this is a good time for a quick interjection. A billion years might sound like a very long time, and it's certainly a hell of a long time to wait for the bus. But in fact, our planet is four and a half billion years old. This means that intelligent life has essentially formed on our planet in the last fifth, the last 20% of time before the sun would boil up the oceans and render it lifeless. If you think about that, it's very interesting. We've had what you'd call intelligent life for oh, perhaps a million years, probably less. And it was in fact just in time before the oceans boil up due to the sun's increasing luminosity. There was a period in history, after life formed but before intelligent life, referred to as the Boring Billion. During this time, as far as we can tell, things were pretty stable. The temperature was fairly constant, the carbon and oxygen levels in the atmosphere more or less stayed the same, and Earth's climate was relatively stable. During the Boring Billion, life was limited to bacteria. But as it ended, and the Earth's atmosphere changed rapidly, Suddenly it was possible for more complex creatures to survive and even thrive, with a sudden oxygenation event allowing for the creatures that would eventually become us to evolve. So in a sense, life nearly missed the boat. If the boring billion had been the boring two billion, and is it really that different? We don't know what ended it, so it could be. Then there's a good chance that complex intelligent life would never have had time to form before the oceans boiled up due to the heating sun. There would have just been bacteria for a couple of billion years, and then the oceans would boil away and there'd be nowhere for them to live. This is just another example of how fortunate we have to be in space and time, even just to exist at all. The sheer number of things that had to go right. But we're imagining now a utopian society where technology provides the solution to every problem. It's the knee-jerk imagination that we have today, but... That's what we're going with. So, Is it really ridiculous then, in this type of society, to think that a little thing like the sun's luminosity gradually changing could really cause this kind of effect? By then, if there are any humans left over on Earth, or whatever superintelligent species replaces us, they'll probably have control over the atmosphere, 
using similar terraforming technology to the kind of technology that they use to colonise new planets and make them habitable. A lot of people have pointed out that we may well need to terraform the Earth someday, for example by removing the extra 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide that we've pumped into the atmosphere. If our future selves were smart enough and stable enough, they could prevent the runaway greenhouse effect, block out some of the incident solar radiation with space-based mirrors, or dock to the atmosphere. Or maybe they'll go the other way, and instead of adapting the Earth to themselves, they'll adapt themselves to the Earth. Maybe they'll be biologically enhanced, so that they no longer need liquid water, can survive temperatures far above boiling point for the Earth's surface. After all, humans have existed for a million years. We've had writing for a few thousand years, which has allowed us to, in some way, pass on teachings in greater volume to future generations. And we've been experiencing this technological revolution for maybe 300 years at the most. So if you're talking about a billion years before this happens, if Earth is still the home of our civilization that far into the future, if technological development doesn't completely stop, it's just wild to think about what we could have. And of course, we can't really conceive of what it will be like. But if it is, if we are still here, if that does happen, then a little thing like the sun being 10% hotter really isn't going to phase us. Modern day humans, on the other hand, would die pretty quickly if this happened tomorrow. So in this episode, I've painted a fantasy that I think perhaps isn't too far from the dominant utopian fantasy of our times. Utopian sci-fi is not fashionable at the moment. Even in science fiction where technological development continues unabated in the way we might expect it to, we have shows like Black Mirror, films like the new Blade Runner sequel. They tend to illustrate a world where we aren't our best selves, where technology makes things worse if it does anything. In the meantime, you have people from Silicon Valley talking about universal basic income and perhaps a future where we've all been made redundant by robots, but somehow their promises either seem vague or veiled or too futuristic and dystopian in themselves. It's difficult to see us coming across a technological utopia the way things are at the moment. And I have a lot of sympathy for the dystopian people, because they're pointing out something that should be obvious. We live in an intensely unfair, unequal, unjust, and often very cruel society. Throwing in super-effective technology into this mix doesn't change society by itself. People talk in this philosophical field about the AI misalignment problem. What happens if we create an incredibly powerful creature, but its values aren't the same as human values, and we wind up trapped in a world that's terrible by our standards? But of course, we're already trapped in such a world. The things we seek to maximise at the moment aren't the things that we really want to maximise. Ask most people what they want, and they'll say they want to be happy, and for people to generally be happy. And yet, a lot of our effort goes into maximising the stock market, the economy, the financial value of things, and that's poorly correlated with the sum total of human happiness. In fact, taking humanity as a whole, it might well go in the opposite direction, as people get exploited to make others rich. So, if the thrust of our society is already suffering from a massive misalignment problem, and we don't correct it, and it seems to me just obvious that it is in so many ways, in so many ways, then adding amazing technologies and the power that they bring to that mix might just exacerbate things further, create new and unanticipated problems, or crystallise the misalignment of our society into a permanent future. Or to put it succinctly, the thing about utopias, as China Mieville says, is that we live in a utopia. It just isn't ours.
There is this sense of the end of history, that the world will crystallise into some final steady-state form, like we're currently living in the ripples of the vast explosion of technology that began in the Industrial Revolution, and we're temporary disturbances that will someday settle down into something stable, some steady state. This is how physical equations work, but it's not necessarily how the universe works. And I would say, as far as ripples settling down, everything that we have ever been is ripples in the universe left over from the Big Bang, that are just temporarily in the process of settling down to a steady state. So don't underestimate the transient, don't underestimate the chaos that settles down just because it's not eternal. Eternity is really difficult, and sometimes it's really boring. And also the end of history has been predicted plenty of times, and it has a funny way of running away from you just as you approach it. But the 21st century asks a lot of tough questions of the human species, as I'm sure anyone who's listened to all of these Teot Wauki specials will agree, and I think that we'll have to find the answers one way or another. And in finding these answers, in asking these questions, there is space for a utopian vision. Even if it's only so that smarter people than me can come in and criticise it, and point out the various ways it could be better, or even rubbish the whole thing, say that it's my utopia and not theirs. Even if it's just so that we have something we can dream about. Even if it's just so that we have something we can work towards, or argue about working towards rather than this whole set of terrifying things that we want to try to avoid. I read back over the silly sketch of Utopia that I wrote over the last few pages, and I wonder if I can imagine a society that would be fair, just, equitable. I wonder if I can imagine a kind of society with the kind of technological integration that seems inevitable actually happening. I wonder if I can imagine it not turning into some hellish dystopia along the way or one of the many existential risks we've talked about killing us all before we get there. I wonder if I'd want to live in my sketch of utopia. I feel a little revulsion at the knee-jerk zeitgeist assumption of our times, that technology can swoop in and save us from everything, including the problems that are created by technology. I feel a little uneasy at the prospect that there maybe is no solution to the problem, that there might be better worlds, but the world isn't something that can be optimised, or that we can't get there from here, that even utopia would contain this vast meaninglessness that often seems to pervade the hollow dreams of those who write utopias, the unbearable lightness of optimization. And I wonder if maybe the future isn't just like today, but even more so, and what that would mean. But I hope that by asking about it, by thinking about it, even if we don't answer the questions, we'll learn some of the important questions to ask. We'll learn about ourselves and what it is that we want. We'll maybe even figure out some of the steps that will be important to take along the way. As always, though, someone else has said it better. So I'll leave you with a quote from the Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano. A great deal of his wonderful writing is about the hardships and suffering, the human rights abuses and poverty in South America. It's in that context, the context of seeing a world so far from what he hoped it could be, and thinking about how it might be made better, that he wrote the following. Utopia is on the horizon. I move two steps closer, it moves two steps further away. I walk another ten steps, and the horizon runs ten steps further away. As much as I may walk, I'll never reach it. So what's the point of utopia? The point is this, to keep walking.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you've enjoyed it, please tell your friends to listen. You can visit our website where you can find all past episodes and a donate link if you feel so inclined on www.physicspodcast.com and there you'll also find the ability to contact us via the contact form. I read all those emails so if you have any comments, concerns, questions, praise, hatred, please let me know. I'll see you next time. You better make some preparations There's no time for hesitations Compile a list of tips Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics To get ready